to the 409th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is February 7th, 2022. Today, I welcome Marxist feminist scholar Sue Ferguson, author of the essay, Life Making or Death Making. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. That's a new time for COVID Calls, and we'll be using that time for now into the middle of March. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is A Dad, a Grandfather, a Farm Worker. A family remembers Tomas Reyes Soto. This appeared in Valley Public Radio, California, by Maddie Bolanos, and the story appeared February 4th, 2022. My grandpa's name was Tomas Reyes Soto, writes Maddie Bolanos, but we, are, we all called him Papi Tomas. He died on December 13th, 2020, a week before his 69th birthday. In the year since his death, I've had a lot of time to think about his legacy and what his decisions meant for me and my future. I feel this extreme sense of gratitude for him. My papi, Tomas, taught me the value of hard work to have pride in my work and that nothing was out of my reach. Papi Tomas was born in Pueblo Nuevo in the Mexican state of Durango in 1951. When he was 12 years old, he started making the trip to the neighboring state of Sinaloa to work picking tomatoes. On one of his trips at age 16, he met my grandma, Elisa Aguilar Zapeda, or Mami Licha. She says he was very direct. He went up to me and said, you're going to be my wife, Chaparita. She says in Spanish, I told him you're crazy. That Saturday, he sent a mariachi that played music from northern Mexico. They married and had five kids together. Soon after, they moved to Mexicali on the border of California and Mexico. He made and sold tacos. My mom, Monica, says some of her favorite memories are helping him cut the cabbage and tomatoes. I just remember he used to make the best tacos, the best flour tortillas, tacos with the best salsas, she says. He made really good spicy salsa. That was his thing. But my grandma says Papi Tomas always had bigger dreams to move to the United States. He never attended school as a child. Mommy Licha says he didn't want that for his kids, so in 1985, Tomas took his wife and kids through the desert across the border. He had the idea that his children had to grow up in the United States and that they were going to be the best there, she says. He was always proud of their accomplishments. When our two oldest children graduated from university, he cried so hard. He would tell all of us, you'd better pay attention in school or this will be your future, my mom says. And I took it literally. I wanted to get straight A's because I did not like working in the fields. Papi Tomas's kids remember him as a tough love kind of dad, but that changed when he became a grandfather. I was born when my mom was 20 years old, the author writes. She was a single mother, 
Many people told her she was making the wrong decision by keeping me, including my grandpa. My mom says their relationship was contentious for the first year of my life, but she was determined to prove him wrong and everyone else who doubted her. She was going to be a successful single mom because her dad taught her to be hardworking and determined. She got a job as a teller at a bank. Now she works as a lending consultant. And she owns a new home in the same fields her dad took her to take olives in as a teenager. During that time, he worked as a supervisor in the fields. After picking me up, he'd usually have to go back to work or run a few work-related errands. I remember on one of those days, we stopped at the gas station near his house, and from inside his truck, he called out to a woman on the street. He told her, be careful, immigration agents are driving around the neighborhood. He was always looking out for his undocumented community. At the start of the pandemic, Papi Tomas took COVID-19 very seriously. He only went to work in the fields and home. Then in late November 2020, Mami Licha contracted the virus while working as a housekeeper at the hospital. Papi Tomas took care of her. Then he contracted the virus and so did my mom. The body was in a lot of pain. And all I can think of is that I hope my dad is not in the same pain that I'm going through, my mom says. And the next day when we learned that he had passed away, it was painful. He had been sick for a few days. My grandma tried convincing him to go to the hospital, but he told her he didn't want to die alone. She tried to convince him that since she worked at the hospital, she would check in on him as often as she could. He still refused. My mommy, Licha, found him at home, lifeless after a night shift at the hospital. That morning, I remember waking up to a scream from across the house. My cousins had gotten the news. My mom, who had been bedridden for days, suddenly had the energy to get dressed. We all raced to the car, tears streaming down our faces as we made the 25-minute drive to my grandparents' house. Mats Reyes Soto passed away on December 13, 2020. He died in his sleep, laying on his side with his hands clasped together in front of him. For me and for my mom, the grief is still very real. A year after my grandpa died, I graduated college and got an internship in Washington, D.C. The day before I left, I went to visit him. I told him how grateful I was for his sacrifices, the values he instilled in my mom that she passed on to me, values that allowed me to fly across the country to pursue my dream of becoming a reporter. We hugged and shared a few tears together. Later that day, my mom says he called her to tell her she did a good job raising me. I felt and still feel indebted to him and my mom for the sacrifices they made for me. I'm just happy I was able to tell him that before he passed away. The story was a dad, a grandfather, a farm worker. The family remembers Tomas Reyes Soto. This appeared in Valley Public Radio by Maddie Bolanos. and appeared February 4th this year, 2022. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and please let me introduce my guest to you, Susan Ferguson. Susan Ferguson is Associate Professor Emerita at Wilfrid Laurier in Canada. Prior to joining the Academy, she worked as a journalist for Maclean's, Canada's national news magazine. Ferguson is a Marxist feminist scholar and activist who has been reading, writing, and thinking about social reproduction theory for many years. Her published work includes articles on feminist theory, childhood and capitalism, and Canadian political discourse. 
Her book, Women in Work, Social Reproduction, Feminism, and Labor, was published in 2020 by Pluto Press. Ferguson is also a member of Faculty for Palestine and on the editorial board of Midnight Sun. She's currently living in Houston, Texas. Sue Ferguson, welcome to COVID Calls. Hi, thanks, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd like to start the way I generally do, just find out a little bit more about where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation looks mm-hmm. like there. Sure, right. I'm uh, living in Houston now. I've been here for, um, we moved down here a year before the pandemic began. So uh, we got a little bit of a taste of Houston before before uh, everything shut down. Um, but yeah, no, it's, I mean, Houston is major city and um, more urban area than a lot of Texas. It's in terms of uh, walking around, going into stores, etc. It's, it's fairly decent. A lot of people are generally masked, etc. Of course, like everywhere else, we have had the Omicron surge. It has peaked. It's now going down, but the ICUs are still very, very full. Um, Infection rates or testing positivity rates are still pretty high, Um, but hospitalizations are falling off a little bit now. So, you know, it's a mixed bag right now. Quite a time to have moved from Canada to the United States. It puts you in a unique position, though, also to compare the two health systems. Mm. Have you kept up with friends back in Canada? What's their experience versus yours? Well, I mean, in terms of um, our own personal health care, we because uh, we moved down here because my uh, husband has gotten uh, was got a position at University of Houston. And it's a well-paying position and we have access to our Blue Cross Blue Shield health healthcare. So in many ways, you know, I'm not feeling more vulnerable or anything here. I do find that there is an awful lot of um, it, it's a kind of complicated system down here as opposed to in Canada. If you need to go to the doctor, you you go to there's a, there's one bureaucracy that you work with, whereas here you have to work with lots of different bureaucracies, depending on which uh healthcare provider you're going to or whatever. Uh but in terms of um healthcare access, I mean absolutely I you know I'm shocked down here to see people on the streets with signs saying that they need, you know, to pay their hospital bills and could you please give them, you know, a dollar or whatever. I like that is heartbreaking to me. And you don't see that. Uh for that you see people on the streets in Canada for sure who need money, but not not to pay their health care bills, et cetera. Yeah. Do you have a personal memory of this pandemic time that really resonates for you? Well, I mean, you you had warned me that you'd ask me that question. I was trying to think it through because, again, relatively privileged position. I don't have, um, you know, in many ways, I've been um, lucky, privileged throughout this period and I one of the things I keep saying to people is I don't even have young children at home anymore and so that to me that would be um quite quite a uh tax on my energies I'm sure but um but I did so I was trying to think I have a you know certainly um like everybody else I've I've had uh interactions with relatives senior people who have um you know, been ill and or died, not necessarily from COVID, like, uh, but um, 
I had an aunt right at the very beginning of, um, this has stuck with me quite a bit, actually, an aunt right at the very beginning of COVID in April of 2020. And she was 93. She's a single woman who uh, never had any children. And myself and my two sisters had in the last couple of years, few number of years, been kind of looking out for her and, and helping her. And she actually was uh, getting quite ill. And in Ontario, you can um, you can do a medical assisted assisted dying death. And so she had actually opted for that at the beginning of COVID, which was hard to organize. But we but we helped her with that. And I mean, what was so hard in many ways, if it, if it had not been for COVID, I would have been there with her while she died. And I couldn't be my sister. I have one sister in Toronto. And so she was able to go, but the two other sisters, myself and, and my other sister is in Chicago. And so, uh, you know, we couldn't cross the border at that point at all. Unvaccinated people were having to quarantine for, for two weeks. Um, we couldn't get there in time. And uh, so, you know, something like that really does stick with you because it's, a, and I couldn't, I mean, we weren't going to zoom in on it because it felt very voyeuristic to do something like that. But the point would be to be there for her and to, and um, you know, it's so very, very sad. And I think that's one very small example of what so many people, you know, have gone through, I think dealing with death during this pandemic, whether it's been from COVID or from other um, causes has been really difficult for for people because you can't gather and grieve in the same ways I, you know we've actually lost a couple other people too and it's it's hurt so much so much not to be able to to grieve properly thanks for sharing that and i'm sorry that your family went went through that and and i'm glad you shared it too because i think for many people hearing that also it's it's helpful mm. to hear because i've talked to lots of people who have had that sense of distance. Um, either somebody was ill, maybe that they didn't even die, but just the distance yes. from people in need and family, but also, of course, with end-of-life issues. And even the obituary I just read of, of uh, Tomas Reyes Soto and the fact that he didn't want to go to the hospital because he was afraid of dying alone. Yeah, um, It's been a real theme throughout this entire pandemic. Uh, it's not something that most of us like to think much about. No, I know. I think we, you know, we sort of take for granted the ways in which we organize and our or process deaths in society or whatever. And then, you know, the pandemic, like every, like so much of life, for so much of life, it has jilted us out of the ordinary. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, that, that, and that's just a very poignant way in, in which um, people have had to really come to terms with and create new ways of doing things, I guess, too. Just a quick reminder that I'm talking to Marxist feminist scholar Sue Ferguson today on COVID calls. And Sue, I discovered um, your work actually, uh, in a sense, too late, I want to say, and I can't wait now to go back and, and read um, your articles and, and your book. But I discovered this tremendous essay that you published in Midnight Sun magazine in October, um, titled Life Making and Death Making. And I want to talk about that, but I'd like to talk about some of your earlier work first. And as a scholar of social reproduction theory, maybe we should start there for listeners who may not be as familiar with what that's about and, and talk about that and, and how that's influenced the kind of topics that you've researched and, and written sure. about in your career before COVID. Sure. 
Um, so social reproduction theory is really just a way of trying to understand the world, <laughs> um, the social systems that we're, that we're all caught up in. And it comes out of um, the Marxist feminist tradition of understanding the world. Um, and it's an attempt to build upon, you know, the a Marxist critique of capitalism. So um, the Marxist critique of capitalism, as people will know, is very much about how value is and profit is generated. And uh, the argument is that it is generated through the exploitation of labor power, which is when you go to work at a factory or at Amazon or whatever, you know, that that um, the capitalist, the boss is making money off of your labor power. Um, and so social reproduction theory says, yes, that's true, but that's not the whole story of capitalism. The whole story of capitalism is that, in fact, capitalism in organizing wage labor in particular ways has also made uh, made it um help helped us to organize or not helped us i guess the organized our unpaid labor in other ways too in ways that are not always which are in fact in ways that are not about enhancing our lives but are in ways about kind of controlling our lives in some ways too and so uh social reproduction theory sort of looks at productive or value-making labor and life-making labor as two um, forms of labor that actually sustain capitalism. Um, and so it's not, you know, capitalism isn't just sustained by the extraction of, of um, value at, at work. It's sustained by the work that we do to create lives so that those lives can then go to work and, um, uh, and produce value for capital. So there's some critical insights here I want to draw you out on a little bit more. I mean, one seems to be uh, around types of labor that have been historically feminized in the West. Mm -hmm. So therefore, they haven't been counted. And, and maybe some of them are even wage labor work, like care work of uh, nursing, for example, or right. teaching, which have been feminized and therefore counted differently. That's one type. But the other is actual reproductive labor itself, child rearing, child raising. Can you say a little bit more about how those factor into the development of theory over time? Sure. Okay. So, so yes, absolutely. And that is the point. Social reproductive labor tends to be feminized. It also tends to be racialized. Um, and, uh, and the reason for that is because the, the, in creating human beings, it's not a very profitable thing to do. <laughs> and so, so there is a, and, and people create, um, themselves and their families, et cetera, um, largely through wages on the one hand and tax and a tax basis, right? The social services that we, that we have like education and healthcare, like Canada, it's healthcare. There's some obviously socialized healthcare here too in the States, but so, so, but my point is that those ca capital in order to sustain itself needs to keep wages and taxes down. Those are the very things that people rely on to make their own lives. And so, there needs to be a way of kind of degrading that label labor that goes into making um, making human life and the you know historic oppression of women the historic oppression of racialized people the historic uh, dispossession of indigenous people all of that can factor into 
um, helping to regulate and, and ensure that the costs of our social reproduction are kept low. And so, so um, that's, you know, the argument is that that's a reason why more, uh, by why those um, efforts at life making are often done by racialized, feminized people. So uh, I'm not sure I've answered your question directly there, but that that sort of expands sort of the understanding of, of how social reproduction theory works. Um, and yeah, I've been, you know, working through those arguments and uh, developing them out of really, they came out of kind of 1970s, late 60s, early 70s feminism. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's well, where it's been, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to ask about that. So the interplay between activism and further development of the theorization along the lines that you're talking about, it seems, you know, um, that the crucial insights. I mean, I guess they were there in Marx, but the crucial insights that you're talking about also, I think, seem to be connected with the rise of of feminist activist uh, politics. I shouldn't say rise; it's always been there, but more mainstream. Let's say in the United States, starting in the '60s. Yes. Yep. Uh, absolutely. So that it definitely comes out of that period and where there's a real, real attempt to try to understand how is it that you can understand capitalism as something that is part and parcel of, of, um, you know, or that, that takes that, that, that uses, I guess, sexism and racism. And, you know, they're in attempts to, to understand how they are the same system, how they work together, even if they might be, and they are, also somewhat separate, right? Like, you know, it's not that every, you know, we're not, uh, women are not oppressed simply because capital needs cheap labor, but women's oppression takes certain forms because capitalism needs cheap labor. Um, so, and similarly for racial oppression, I'd say. And so, you've written yeah. about capitalism and childhood, and I wonder if you could say a little bit about that work. Yeah, I mean, I was sort of intrigued by um, thinking through the question of how childhoods are socially reproduced in capitalism. And one of the key things about children, I think children pose a kind of interesting problem for capital, because ultimately, capitalism's capital bosses um, really only need your labor power. They don't need your whole humanity. Um, but we're not born as people who are, will just naturally give up our labor power. We're not, nobody is born into being a, what you'd call a capitalist subject. Um, you become a capitalist subject and you become a capitalist subject throughout your lifespan. You become it every day as well. So it's not that it's not even like adults are fully formed capitalist subjects, I think, but, but children in particular are, um, do not, you know, um, are not shaped in order to be people who would necessarily be workers for capital, people who would, who would be exploitable people. And so, um, so, you know, my work there is really around trying to understand what are the social forces and dynamics that work to shift children into capital, to being capitalist subjects. And one of the things that I think is really interesting to think about is how children are actually workers in some ways in the sense that they are players they all they are constantly interacting interacting with the world around them in sensual creative ways that we would associate with the best types of work you know and so it's there's there's just this kind of ambivalence then that that develops around childhood over you know we want to i think connect with that playfulness 
Yet at the same time, as parents, we're worried about them being productive human beings. In the, and and we, so we have to contain that playfulness. And capital, you know, the state and school and education and everything is part of the, is, 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 helps shape the, the, gives us a framework through which all that gets worked out, the negotiation between what, what's play and what's work and how do you, when do you learn to stop playing and only become workers and um, et cetera. So that's sort of where that whole project goes in my mind anyway. I was talking with journalist Tara Haley the other day about something related. We were talking about the sort of um, rhetoric of getting back to normal um, mm. in the United States. So much of that revolves around the schools. And it's hard, it's a hard truth, but I think it's a real truth that so much of the emphasis of getting kids back in schools has to do with getting kids in school so parents can work. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's not to say it's either or, and I'm not saying parents don't want their children to learn and, and thrive, but the larger structural issue really has to do, um, with household economic pressure, which then forces children, um, yeah. And often, I would say, unfortunately, into spaces that are not as safe as they could be. In some cases, quite dangerous spaces in states that have done away with vaccine mandates, things like that. So it's not about childhood per se, but I wonder how you see that problem looking back now, you know, through the lens of COVID, how you see that earlier work about childhood. Right. Well, I mean, I think it's sort of interesting because I think there's, you know, there's a fascination with childhood in capitalism liberal democracies, cultural, you know, um, for sure. And um, it tends to be seen as, as, as sort of almost a redeeming feature of society that we have these playful, wonderful, celebratory childhoods, and we educate our children well and all this. But that's very much an ideal. And actual childhoods are very, very different. And I think with COVID, as I think I, you know, I've, I've said before in writing that, you know, COVID really shines a bright light on how society really works and on how, how our social reproduction really works. So the social reproduction of childhood gets, um, you know, clearer to people. They understand it better, I think, with something like COVID because, again, because you've been stopped in your tracks from the normal everyday life and you've had to kind of renegotiate things like what you do with your child when they're at home uh, and not just you, but everybody at work is doing the same thing. Um, so yes. And what we're seeing now, absolutely with the return, the kind of very callous return to school. And it's not that kids shouldn't, you know, don't, don't benefit from being at school uh, too. Like I don't, you know, I want to make that clear, but I do think that the, the, the lack of choice that people have about whether to keep their children safe, or whether to send them to school where they may not be safe or where they may be, you know, um, a vector for transmitting COVID back to people in the household that are, that, um, may then get sick or whatever. Um, so, you know, there's no, um, you can, you can see how there's a kind of, a despite all the rhetoric around how precious our children are, we're not really keeping them safe. And we're not really even all that worried about educating them because, of course, we're sending them to schools where there are no teachers often now, too, because so many teachers are sick and quitting. And so there's, you know, I think those are all, um, um, they, they shine a light on the hypocrisies, I guess, of, 
of that kind of ideal sense that, you know, that, that the West is known for, you know, having this wonderful um, celebration of childhood or whatever. And, it, you know, it's not true. It really isn't. And, uh, you know, anyway, so I, yeah, that's, I think, I think COVID shines a really bright light on that, which is nice, although sad, <laughs> nice, nice that the, you know, the reality is clearer, but it's also a very sad reality, of course. to this essay you wrote, Life Making and Death Making, and um, I'm going to read a sentence from it that it was one of these sentences, and I read a lot about COVID, but this one just really made me sit up straight. Um, and you wrote, um, as the pandemic has made crystal clear in the trade-off between economic health and workers' health, capitalism sides with the former, which is another way of saying that capitalism sides with death over life. So lay out the landscape of this article for us a, a little bit. We understand the kind of you know, theory and cases that you've been interested in your yeah. career. And so here comes this global pandemic. Right. I mean, I think what I'm trying to get at there is, and especially how many months, 20 months now into, into the pandemic, we've seen capitalism is rebounding. Profits are up. Profit, I was reading even, um, Today, something that said in the U.S., U.S. profits are up by seventy percent from last from from last year. You know that's amazing, and there's a total of one point eight trillion dollars of new wealth that's been created by who? By by workers, right? But so capitalism is chugging along. It may not chug along beautifully forever. In fact, there are signs that it probably won't, and and that it's also, as we know, quite a crisis-ridden system, but it's chugged along at a tremendous cost of people's lives. And that's what I mean by it being there, there, you know, the rush to get back to normal, to get back to an economic health has been at this, has been, you know, at the cost of people's real health of, of life. And so, uh, and we know that throughout the pandemic there, you know, a lot of low-wage people who had no choice, who could not, not even necessarily low-wage, but actually just people who couldn't, who were not um, able, they were they were called essential workers, they were not able to stay home, um, or, uh, you know, or simply they wouldn't have had the, the, any paycheck if they didn't stay home, they, you know, people who were without any of the subsidies that, that some governments gave, gave out. Um, you know, those people right away you, were, their lives were being compromised. The people's lives who were really compromised at the very beginning of the pandemic, and this is entirely true in Canada as here too, but I, in Canada, I think it really stands out. I don't have the stats, but I, I'm pretty sure during the first wave of the pandemic, it was close to like 80% of the deaths were in, were in senior living homes, you know? So, and I, you know, so who are these, you know, how, how come? <laughs> How, you know, what, how could we not put resources towards people whose lives were really on the line? And, you know, then the point of that article, too, was to say it's a lot of the people who's both who's as workers 
who were dying were the people and or in getting sick were people who were frontline healthcare workers and frontline and and now it's frontline teachers you know and so it's a lot of it's often the social reproducers who have paid the price for capitalist accumulation um and you have to ask why you know is it worth it <laughs> and I, like i would say no it's not it's to enrich the the few at the expense of many lives so there was a moment, um, I wish it had been longer than a moment, but that's mm. a few months at the beginning of the pandemic in the United States. I mean, looking back at that period with, with the lockdowns um, mm. and the sort of uh, government payments, it does really seem like a very, very different period yeah. in the pandemic. But there was massive, something that never happens in the United States, mostly bipartisan, massive government spending under a Republican administration. Yeah. Um, paycheck, paycheck protection, direct subsidies to businesses, but also to workers, small businesses, large businesses. You know, yeah. I mean, it was something we hadn't really seen in the United States in so long that people didn't remember it. And the only vestiges of it left now are a couple months left in deferred uh, student loan payments. But it right. was pretty dynamic, uh, neo-Keynesian, as you write in your piece, sort of push. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder how you interpret that. So, I mean, it's so interesting because, the you know, prior to COVID, I would have said, you know, the, when the expansion of support for life making from the state almost invariably happens because working class people fight for it. And that is true that, you know, that's how Canada got health care, you know, public health care. Um, that's how a lot of things have happened. <laughs> but but um, what you had at the beginning of the pandemic was capital saying, oh, my God, we rely on people to get to work. And now with this pandemic, we these people, if they come to work, they will die. So we need to do something. So it was capital that pushed for the, those expansions. I mean, so did working class people. But it was definitely supported by, as I think I make the point in the, in the article, the IMF, for instance, the International Monetary Fund, which is a neoliberal, you know, austerity imposing um, global finance institution, you know, so, and, and so you have a recognition there of just how much capitalism depends on life making. Um, and so that's all good and well. And so, yes, it was amazing to see these things. And the other thing that was, you know, that, that proved to us was that when, where there's a will, there's a way, you know, that the, the political will was there, you could spend that money. There, there was no, those, the floodgates were open, trillions of dollars went out into the economies. And so, so it's not a fact, it's not the case that there's no resources so much as it is a case that eventually the political will shuts down. And that's because there's a way in which capitalism can continue to churn and always has and always will by um, having, you know, enough people, <laughs> but but not supporting life, you know, by having by having, um, uh, you know, a forcing some people to work in very risky situations and forcing a lot of people to work in very risky situations, but also mm -hmm. be in in, um, you know, creating just barely enough uh, sustenance for people to to go on selling their labor and uh, so it's not you know these 
however much people like to think of capitalism as a society of, of freedom, um, you know, that it's not really about our freedom. It's about it's about how do we contain ourselves so that we are free enough to work for capital. So this, I, I find this, that awful. <laughs> yeah, and and I think and there's some important kind of caveats there you point out. I mean, this process, I think you term it life making from above, you know, mm -hmm. this process of government expenditure to to uh, basically to sustain life in a period of time which people seemingly can't work yeah. uh, or they can't work safely, except um, essential workers, as you point right. out. Many, and the essential worker category in the United States kept expanding and shifting. So yes. when it became a political, um, it seemed there were some problems with the supply chain with meat supply. So now all of a sudden there's an executive order telling meat producers they have to be at work. Same That's true right. for other agricultural, um, you know, uh, agricultural settings. And then as you earlier pointed out, I think this is really good insight that, um, that for those who were not in the economy, in the mainstream economy as laborers, so either children or those who are, are in nursing facilities or long-term care facilities, they're left out of that e equation and, and by extension, the direct subsidies that could have gone to help them yeah. were not there, at least not at the beginning. So there's all of these sort of, you know, they may seem like kind of carve-outs to the overall, what seems like government responds forcefully, but in in reality, I think there's many, many caveats there that are very distressing to me. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, we see that there's actually another very good article on in Midnight Sun by Daniel Sarah Karasik, um, which is called Pandemic Realism, I think, or something. And But it's, I might have that title wrong, but um, where they argue that um, there are places where there have been COVID zero or near COVID zero policies. China is one very authoritarian, <laughs> you know, they're, they're not holding that up as a, um, beacon of, of the way forward, but they're basically saying it's been possible. The East coast of Canada, the provinces were very, very careful, uh, to, to limit and, and trace and track and test, you know, so the, uh, New Zealand is another good example. So like these places, you know, where it, they've actually shown that it's been possible to really contain and possibly get to a zero COVID um, situation. But that's not the majority of, you know, that's not where the majority of the um, capitalist countries have gone. And, you know, that's all a matter of, of you know, a calculation. And that these other com these other countries, we can talk about China separately, but it, but although I I think it operates on a capitalist kind of um, system as well, it's just as organized by the state differently. But they, but you know these other it's not that these other countries aren't capitalist or these other spaces aren't capitalist, but they have been pushed more for in different ways to respond to have the state respond in particular ways that have maybe been well have definitely been smarter in terms of containing the virus. How much do you think that the pandemic has been a referendum on the sort of larger social commitments of countries to increase the social safety net? And and I ask that because countries, you know, many European countries have had high COVID rates. Yeah. Um, and they and they do have a, a large, you know, like take Germany for example, or or very Scandinavian countries that have large social safety net and services, yeah. and they still suffered disease as well. So how do you parse that in comparison to countries like the United States or Brazil, for example? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really hard. I think it, it's, um, 
I, I think that there's so much within a particular country's political, um, economic makeup. So the, you know, the relationship of the, depending what, a little bit on what party's in power, depending on the nature of the relationship between the, the political decision makers and the economic decision makers that will vary, that will, so I think you will get different outcomes. You do get different outcomes in different places. Um, that, and yeah, it's been interesting. There's been no, I think, easy to find pattern about types of regimes and, and their success in battling COVID or whatever. Um, and I think that just speaks a lot to, I guess, the, um, the fact the fact that there's going to be a certain give in the amount that that the state can manage and kind of um, give into the you know and the state the amount that the state can and the state that the state is willing to give into um, forces that push back against capital but um, and so yeah I mean I and that will depend so much on sort of the balance of whatever the 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 political pulls and struggles are in those particular places. So I don't, I don't know if that. Yeah, no, it's a really, I think it's a, it's too early to say, but it, you know, I think a lot of that has been a discussion about the death rate and, 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 yeah. and I think that's, of course, that's a factor. Of course, our numbers on deaths are, are um, terrible, are too low. Yeah. Um, they're terrible and even oh, too low. Yes, yes, yeah, um, yes, you're right. Yeah. But it, it will be other things. I think um, personal bankruptcies, uh, mm -hmm. medical bankruptcies, mm -hmm. um, things that we don't count very, very well. I mean, I've been working yeah. with um, uh, Jacqueline Bernamont and Robert Soden okay. on trying to write about what we call accounting for care. And there's yeah. so many things, and I think this fits in very well with the work you do in social reproduction, because so much of what matters in an overall society are things that are, economists don't count or they don't count well. Right. Yep. And, and so those will be the measures ultimately I mean, right. I'm trying to answer this very hard question that I yeah, asked you, <laughs> and I and I think I just I guess my point is I think looking oh, the pandemic is correct, but there are all these other epiphenomena that will all tell maybe a clearer story in the longer period mm -hmm. of time. So I hope I hope you can. <laughs> I'll look forward to reading that. <laughs> so uh, I want to be mindful of of time in my discussion with Sue Ferguson today, but I did want to ask you. You also use this wonderful phrase in the in the piece, "life making from below." Mm -hmm. So that's different from paycheck protection. What does that mean? Well, I think, I mean, we all do our life making from below. We all, we all organize the way in which we work to produce our and reproduce our lives. But I think what you get with the pandemic happening is that there's been, there's an, because there were gaps in care that from the institutional level, um, because we had uh, this, you know, rapid shutdown of the economy, um, we people scrambled and coordinated and developed ways of provisioning for themselves and each other collectively often and you see that you see that happen whenever there you would know that studying disasters you see that happening wherever there are you know disasters that happen and um actually there's a really nice book too called um disasters and social reproduction by peer illner i can write that in your chat but um that talks exactly about this. Um, make sure I've got the, there we are. Um, 
Oops, sorry. So, but and that's also by Pluto in uh, the same series that my book's published in. But the, um, I think you the rise of mutual aid societies, the the um, development of uh, people neighborhood committees that helped feed and bring groceries to other to other people, those sorts of things. That was a real reorganization reorganization of our social reproduction. And what is interesting about that is it shows that there are other ways of organizing um, and there are collective ways of organizing. What I would argue in a lot of the case, you know, they, they tend to wax and wane a little bit with, with need, obviously. But I think if we were to expand our ideas around what social reproduction from below and politicize our ideas around that, it would be really, really helpful. So you get something like the Black Lives Matter um, protests that argue for defunding the police and fund and putting resources into communities instead, take the money from reproducing ourselves from above, because the police are a form of social reproduction from above too. They're a, they're a coercive form that um, regulates our people so that we have particular particular um, populations in the US, very much black and indigenous populations are uh, more heavily policed in, in, in public spaces. So their lives are more constrained in certain ways. And, um, but if you, if you, you know, removed the funding from the police and actually fed that into the communities, then you would actually have the resources there for people to actually organize, continue to organize and develop ways of, of, um, producing their lives collectively and not even just producing their lives but maybe even enhancing their lives which is something we rarely talk about like where where is a social um commitment to actually making people's lives better and richer and funner you know <laughs> those sorts uh, of things. we've been just talking for two years now we've been just talking about survival yes yes yeah yeah it's very sad and yet you know human beings are creative wonderful people and you know i I know there are some nasty human beings out there, but I, but I, but what I mean is, you know, we've seen that. We, I think the COVID has taught us that the people were and, and will come together and and help each other. They always do in the disaster. I think that's, um, you know, again going back to that earlier period of the pandemic, I've been struck, and I've talked about this on COVID calls before, but that that lockdown period. Um, in which people around the world basically participated in a collective action, the like of which we have not seen yes. in a long, long time. And they did it partially because they were afraid to protect themselves. But in the main, they did it to protect people they'll never meet. Yes. And, yes. and so when I get really down, I do think about that moment of solidarity as a building, some, as a building block. I just don't want to lose it. Yeah. And it's hard. It's hard because we all get very busy with our own little lives uh, when things go back to normal. Right. When when. Uh, and so it's very, very tricky. And that's why I, so, I also, you know, tried to make all the way didn't say it very well. The point about it, politi it's so important to politicize this stuff, to think, to think through what do we need to do? What do we need to, how can we make these demands more uh, public? Um, and how can we get the resources that we really, really need from the state? And how can we connect that with the demands of, you know, everyday workers at work to actually have more control over their lives at work at workplaces too. So I, so I, you know, I think that that's 
very much part, you know, the article that I wrote was very much about saying capitalism systemically undermines us and our life making. And that you, it's, we have to start, of course, by making these demands to enhance our life making, but we can't do, you know, there'll be a limit to how much we'll be able to achieve if we are still in a capitalist society whatever you know through um throughout this because the the capital because it has to keep taxes and wages low because it needs it uh you know people to do uh jobs at low wages will continue to support racism sexism uh and exploitation you know so and colonialism i mean so it's all it's sort of all built into a system that we need to start thinking about how do we reorganize not just work at workplaces, but work in of life making too. And how can we bring those things together? And that's sort of what I mean by politicizing it too. I want to remind everyone that you've been listening to COVID calls and I've been talking today with Sue Ferguson and she's the author of Women and Work, Social Reproduction, Feminism and Labor, which came out with Pluto Press in 2020. And then please do check out her wonderful article in Midnight Sun magazine, Life Making or Death Making, and I put the link up here. Or you can just go to midnightsunmag.ca and you can read that there and um, the other articles that are there. And Sue Ferguson, um, I learned a lot in this discussion with you and, and from your writing and can't wait to read more. Thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a great, great to meet you and, and to be able to participate in this. Thanks so much. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. Thank you.